Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. Well, I know this is maybe a biased statement from me, but I think the Bible's a pretty interesting book. Uh, Again, it's biased. I get it. I get it. But I think it's a pretty interesting book. And the Bible's interesting because it has, especially when you read a lot of the Old Testament, you get a lot more stories, a lot more dialogue with people, uh, that sort of thing. There's just interesting things that happen in the Bible, interesting people in the Bible. And of course, if you're at all familiar with the Bible, you know there's two parts of the Bible, right? We have the Old Testament, part one. We have the New Testament, part two. And the reason I mention that is because if you've read any of the Bible or all the Bible or you've studied it all your life, It almost looks like these two parts should not go together in a lot of ways. It almost seems like they're two totally separate works. The way they're written, almost what they express seem to be totally separate. And yet they're combined. Yet the Old Testament is indeed part one, and the New Testament is indeed part two. And so that's kind of the heart behind this series that we're going to start today. There's a phrase that talks about this combination of these two parts that seem very odd that go together, and that is this that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. That's a great way to explain how these two otherwise seemingly different parts fit together. I'll say it again. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is then the Old Testament revealed. So today we're going to start a seven-week series called Greater, in which we're looking at sort of that idea. What we're going to do is each week, uh, through really the rest of the year, we're going to look at seven different Old Testament figures, most of which, especially today, we've all heard of. What we're going to do is not just look at what's important or key about that Old Testament figure, but more importantly, we're going to look at how every person in the Old Testament, as great as they were, and everything that they did, as great as it was, was always pointing to Jesus, who is indeed greater. That's the theme for the next several weeks. So we're going to look at these Old Testament people, these figures, and why they were important and why they're very well known and what their importance is in the first half of the Bible. But then we're all going to see this connection each week or several connections each week to Jesus, who is obviously not just the theme of the New Testament, but what we're looking at, indeed, the theme of the entire Bible. Even if his name is not mentioned specifically in the first half of the Bible, he's there. Even if specific things that he would later do are are not mentioned, it's there. And so we're going to dig a little bit deeper in these uh, very well-known Old Testament figures. And I'm excited to see what what we learn along the way. I'm excited to make some really neat connections uh, from the Old to the New Testament, from these other people to Jesus, who ultimately fulfills and is a greater version of each of those people. Now, I was going to go completely in chronological order in the, New, in the Old Testament, but I'm going to flip a couple of them, uh, and, and we'll talk about why in a few weeks. But uh, we're going to go pretty much in order for the next few weeks. And so today we're going to start at the very beginning 
of the whole thing. Today we're going to talk about Adam and how Jesus is a greater Adam. And this one's pretty easy because Adam's really awful. He's pretty terrible. And so it's not that hard of a step for Jesus to be greater than Adam. And we'll talk about why that is this morning. There's three really simple observations about Adam we're going to make and then see how Jesus reflects those and even enhances those and really fixes some of those. And so again, today's kind of getting our feet wet, kind of basic stuff. We probably know these things about Adam, maybe even know the connection to Jesus. So if not, you're going to learn some cool stuff. And if you do, it's just going to kind of get us going in this mode where we're going to go for the next few weeks. All right. So the first key thing about Adam, who is the first human, right? Adam, Genesis 1, we'll read it in a minute. Uh, God made Adam and then later from Adam made Eve. Now, so I, I want you to kind of think in terms of Ad, when if I just talk about Adam, Eve's in the middle of all this too, but we're focusing on him because of the connection to, to Jesus Christ, okay? So the first main thing we, we look at with Adam is that he was made in God's image. Made, and that's, you know, like, well, no dust even. So let's read it. We'll get it out of the way, and then we'll talk about why that's important, okay? Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27 says this, Then God said, Let us make human beings in our image to be like us, They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. Verse 27, so God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. So what we see here is kind of God saved the best for last, okay? Uh, Up till this point, God has created everything else in the entire universe besides a creature to rule over everything else in the universe. All the animals have already been created, all of the plants, all the water, all the mountains, everything in the universe has been made. And then God's like, well, I should probably put something or someone in charge of all this because I don't want to do that. I want to relax now. I've worked for six days. I'm really tired. (laughs) I want to take a break. Not really. But he did say, I'm going to put, I'm going to make a creature that is going to be the ultimate creature in this creation who's going to rule everything else. So he, he decided to make humans, and the first human is obviously Adam. So he says he's made in God's image. I liken that to basically he's a copy. So it's not the real thing. It's not the first edition. It's not really the authentic version it's a copy of that it's close there's a lot of similarities but when you make a copy of something it's not exactly the same there's a little bit it's a little bit less bright if you're copying like a piece of paper in a printer not quite the same brightness it's not the original because i have it right here that's a copy that's kind of how we view adam and therefore all of us and so what's what's the importance of this idea of us really adam and then us being made in god's image there's a few things i want to look at quickly The first thing, this idea of us being made in God's image, I think it helps us to understand God as much as we're able to. Now, we're never going to fully understand him. We're a copy of him. So we don't have the full download of information that he has and that he is. But he does give us characteristics that he has. We have a glimpse of that. So like love, that's a characteristic that we have that God also has. There are some characteristics that God has that we do not have. Like God is omnipresent, which means he is everywhere all at the same time. We don't have that ability. And if you're a parent, with, when you remember having small children, you probably wish you were omnipresent, but you're not, okay? So in that way, we're not like God, but we do share things like love and beauty and mercy. And also, he gives us a will. 
which will be very important later on in the story of Adam. God gives all of us a will, a human will, a free will, just like God. God has a will, right? We, a lot of times we'll pray for God's will to be done. God, what is your will? Well, we also, as we know, have a will. That's how we, are, that's how we can sort of understand a bit more of the nature of God. Also, being made in God's image helps us to have a relationship with God. And that's what separates us from all other creatures. Like cute little furry bunnies don't really have a personal relationship with their creator. They just exist, right? They're cute and furry, but they don't really have that relationship with God that we do because we are made in his image, unlike the cute little fluffy bunny, okay? And Adam was very unique in his and and Eve as well. Again, they were unique in their communication, their relationship with God, and that they, the Bible says they literally walked with God in the garden, in Genesis. They literally talked with God in the garden. They had this connection that, as we'll see later after them, no one's ever had before. It's all their fault, right? We're going to blame Adam a lot today. That's the whole theme of Adam, unfortunately. But they had that for a while. We don't know how, maybe even, you know, 10 years, 100 years. We don't know how long. They had this intimate, personal connection. Now, we have a connection with God, but it's not to the degree even that they had. So they had this unique, uh, you know, relationship with God. But here's really where it gets down to the everyday for us. Why is it important that we understand that all humans are made in God's image? Why is that important? Well, it's important because it helps us to know that all humans are made in God's image, so all humans have value and worth. So especially in this politically charged season, even post-election, we we need to remember this, okay? Everyone is, is made in the same image of the same God, so we all have value and worth. Despite what your belief systems are, or how you voted on Tuesday, or what God you worship, or if you don't worship any God, or what your skin color is, or where you're from, or the language that you speak, we are all created in God's image in an equal way. That is key for us every single day. This is why sinning against another human is such a big deal to God. Why would he care how, we, how his creatures treat one another? Well, he doesn't really care that the lion kills the antelope. That doesn't bother him at all. But he does care when a human kills a human because we're made in his image, which means when we sin against someone else, we are sinning against God. That's why in Psalm 51, after David has this affair with one of his best friend's wives and then gets her pregnant and then kills his best friend to try to cover it up, in Psalm 51, when he repents of his sin, he writes, O God, against you and you only have I sinned. Well, that's not accurate. He sinned against his friend's wife and sinned against his friend and then tried to, he sinned against the whole kingdom. He didn't sin against God, but David understood, if I am created in God's image, and everyone else in existence is created in God's image. And when I sin against someone else, it is a sin against God. He takes that very personally. He doesn't like it. He doesn't want to see, you know, us hurting one another and murdering one another and speaking ill of one another and out each other's throats. He doesn't like that because we're made in his image. That's not how it was meant to be. So it's important that we see to, to get this thing going that Adam was made and then therefore we are created in God's image. The second thing here about Adam that we'll talk about for, for a minute is that, in, in a way, to extend that idea, Adam was the first of his kind. And being first is hard. Any, anybody, you're the oldest child in your family, you're the firstborn, 
Okay, it really stinks sometimes, doesn't it? Because you're the guinea pig kid, right? You're the one, your parents had no idea what they were doing, and they, and they put, you know, all the issues that they had to work out, they worked them out on you. All the things they tried to figure out, they figured them out with you. And then your siblings come along, and life is so easy breezy for them because the, all the mistakes have been made through you, on you. And so being first is difficult. It just is. So I want to go through, I looked this up this week, a a couple of famous firsts in history to illustrate this idea. As much as we want to rag on Adam, you know, like, and we'll talk, I'm going to let the cat out of the bag. He was the first sinner as well, okay? Uh, It's hard being first. And when you're literally the first ever of anything, it's difficult. So a couple of, of things, I'm a history guy, and so if you don't want to zone out for like five minutes, feel free. It's, it's okay. But I want to go through a couple of accounts in history to illustrate this idea. Being first is difficult. It's hard, but it also is really cool and really important. So one from about 500 years ago, this guy named Ferdinand Magellan, he was the first person to ever circumnavigate the globe. And so this was, again, 1519, 500 years ago. He leads this expedition of five ships from Spain, and they're going to travel sort of southwest all the way around the globe. And so they start out, again, five ships, 270-something crew members, and they're going to find these new trade routes. They're going to find, explore new territory. It's going to be an amazing mission. And they, you know, it takes them nearly an entire year to get from Spain, travel southwest to the west coast of South America. Like today, that would be like, you know, a five-day cruise, and for them, it was like an eight-month-long, treacherous, you know, dangerous journey. So when they get down to the eastern side of South America in about three months or so, it's a really harsh winter. They have to stop. Supplies get so low, their records, that they had to actually eat the rats on board the ship to survive and even eat the sawdust of the ship to survive. And they are barely getting started at this point. So they stop on the east coast, really at Rio de Janeiro for the winter. You think, oh, that's cool, holiday. Not really, not, not that great. So then when, they, when the weather clears and they're able to go, they go down past the southern tip of South America through what is now known as the Strait of Magellan. So if you're first, you get stuff named after you. That's kind of cool, right? So they travel around the coast. They go back up. But before they can even cross through that strait, one of the ships decides we're done. We're going home. See you guys. Have fun dying. We're going to go back home. And they go back to Spain, and and they just live their lives. And nobody knows who they are. (laughs) They're nobodies, right, history-wise. I mean, they're awesome people, I'm sure, but they're nobodies. just want to say that for the record. So they keep going. They get to the Philippines about a year and a half later into their journey. And that's kind of Magellan, the end of Magellan's trip because he's killed by the locals there on the island. And so he gets credit for finishing the trip, even though he really didn't. I find that fascinating. So here's how hard it is being first. He's killed halfway through, first of all. But then almost three years to the day later, these, these men, this crew, this expedition gets back to Spain. They finally make it, and it takes him three years to do so. And so here's what's interesting. Out of five ships, only one ship survived. Out of 270 crew members, only 18 men survived this trip. Being first is hard. It's difficult. But what this expedition did is it opened up really the world to the European continent in a way that had never been opened up before. It's hard, but it has its benefits. Then about 100 or so, 130 years ago, is this one we may have heard of called Marie Curie. She's a Polish scientist who studied uh, chemistry and physics in uh, France. She's really one of, if not the first woman, to study 
physics and chemistry. It was, a, as everything was at one time, basically male-dominated systems, uh, studies. So she broke that glass ceiling, as we like to say. She broke that ceiling, okay? And she had to endure a lot. Being first was hard. So she's first at really two things. Uh, well, I already said one, so I guess three things. The other thing that she's known for, she's the first ever female to win the Nobel Prize, so in 1903, she won the Nobel Prize for physics with her work um, on radium, in which she helped to basically design the first x-ray machine. Being first is hard, but it has some pretty amazing benefits. So she's the first woman to ever win a Nobel Prize, but she's the first person, human, ever to win two of them. Because eight years later, in 1911, she won the pri Nobel Prize in chemistry because she discovered two brand new elements. Like, how cool is that? She's the first person to discover that these things exist, and she got to name them as well. That's, again, if you're first, you get to name stuff. It's pretty cool. So, but being first was hard. Uh, I mean, the sexism that she had to push through in that industry was nearly insurmountable for her to be looked down upon. Just because she's not a man is something that she had to face because she was the first to do it. The hostility that she endured she had to endure. She was the first. She pushed through and made it through, and now we are the recipients of, of her work a hundred years later. Being first is hard, but there are great benefits to it. And since we're in this political season, there are people that will ask me, who's my favorite president? I love all of them. Um, well, I love most of them. No, I love all of them. I love all of them in a, in a historical sense. Uh, but they ask me, who's my favorite? And I always say my favorite is George Washington because he was the first. That's why. I don't know if he did the most. I think he probably did. He kind of helped build this thing, right? That's the point. He was first. So he's like fighting battles to try to make this country its own country. Check off the box there. He survived that. And he did, he did so great. They basically elected him to be the first president, uh, really, when they're making the, these documents, the Constitution. Uh, Declaration of Independence, he's there over those things as well. He's in charge from the very beginning. He's first. He has no blueprint on how to do this because he's actually making the blueprint on how to do this. So he's first. He has nobody behind him to say, well, how did they do that? doesn't exist for him. He's the first. Now, were there challenges? Absolutely. But here's how great. Can you imagine in our political climate today this happening? He was such a great president that they wanted to make him king. That doesn't, that's not going to happen ever again, is it? Like, ever. Like, you're in there six months. Let's get rid of them and get somebody else. After two terms, we're like, just keep going, George, just forever. He's like, we kind of just left that. Uh, let's not repeat our mistake. And so he, you know, again, being the humble man that he was, being the greatest, uh, he turned that down. So Adam is similarly the first of his kind. Was it difficult? You betcha it was, you know. It's even hard for him to follow one rule, which is all he had to do, basically, which if you, again, know yourself or your children you know one rule is one rule too many to follow so adam is no different and he's kind of the first he was the first of his kind but here's again what unfortunately what adam is known for is that uh, adam's disobedience brought death boo you know boo adam uh, and so unfortunately again that's adam's claim to fame so god made all this wonderful stuff in this garden called eden for adam and eve to enjoy and they really they just had the one rule right you can do anything you want here you can eat anything you want here you can enjoy anything you want here except for that one tree right there in the middle of the garden the tree of life you can't touch that you can't eat of it or god said you will die which is not in the plan originally right if there's a rule that you will die if you do that then the original plan was you will never die so what do they do pretty quickly here they break the one rule. 
And so then God finds out. I love how God does this. He finds out. They hide from, him, they hide from God after they've eaten of, the, of this tree. They know they've done something really bad, and they try to hide. And God's like, where are you? Where are you? Like, you know, he knows where they are. <laughs> it's X-ray vision, you know, he didn't need the X-ray machine to find people. He didn't need Marie Curie to help him with that. So uh, he, he basically finds out what's happened, and they say, well, this serpent came, and he talked to us, which, weird, and uh, he told us to do it. And we did. And so God's like, not good, guys. And so here's what he says. I want to read this because it'll come in handy in a little bit. Exodus 3, 14 through 19. says, Then the Lord God said to the serpent, so he curses all three of these people involved in, in this uh, event. First he says, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. And I will, this is important. This will be important later. I will cause hostility between you and the woman between your offspring and her offspring, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Then he said to the woman, ready ladies, you can boo Eve in a second, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy and in pain you will give birth and you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. That's never talked about that often and I'm not going to talk about it today, all right? (coughs) Today's not that day. And then to the man, to Adam, he said, since you listened to your wife, God said that, okay, guys, not me. I, God said that. Since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. By the sweat of your brow will you have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. Here's the real curse. For you were made from dust, and to dust you will return. This is a death penalty. This is a death sentence. Again, not part of the original plan. This is a curse as a result of disobedience to God. So so Adam's disobedience causes, brings about death. That's a big deal. And it's not just for Adam and Eve. It's not just for them. It's for all of us. This goes all the way down. Romans 5.12, Paul says, When Adam sinned, Sin entered the world, period. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. So this sin thing keeps going, and the death thing keeps going, and it all started here in this moment with Adam and also with Eve. I want to talk about very quickly, though, two, two traps. And this is going to be very practical for just a second, and then we'll flip to the second half to bring Jesus into this, okay? Two things that I want to show from this account in Genesis 3 about the fall of man or original sin or whatever you want to call it. There are two things that Adam believed that he should not have. This is the whole point of temptation. This is the danger of temptation, okay? Two traps that Adam fell into. First, he fell into the trap of doubt, because when you go back and read this account in Exodus 3, the, or Genesis 3, the first half of Genesis 3, when Satan comes to them in the garden, how he tempts them is he says, did God really say you shouldn't eat of that tree? He's creating a little bit of doubt up here about, well, what were the instructions? What was the rule? What, what was the command? What did God really say? And the more they talk to him, the more they think about it, they sort of twist in their own mind. They created just enough, enough of a seed of doubt to give in and do the opposite of what they were told to do. So he said, did God really say? And so, because then what he does later is he says, well, God just doesn't want you to be like him. He knows if you eat of this tree, you'll be like him. But that's false, 
Because we've already established they are like God in that they are made in His image. They are as much like God as they can be. There's nothing more they can do to be more like Him as His copy, the first ones, okay? And so he creates this doubt in their mind that's really based on a lie by twisting what God has said. The second thing that they have here, that Adam has, is what you would call an offer too good to refuse. There's this Godfather moment here in, ex- in I keep saying Exodus, that's next week, uh, Genesis 3. There's this, there's this offer that's too good to, to refuse, it's, but it's too good to be true as well. Because he, he, Satan comes to them with, I'll get, you get special knowledge. That's what God's concerned about. If you eat of this tree, he says, you'll know, you'll know good and evil, right? You'll, you'll know uh, what's right and wrong. And you'll have this special knowledge of God or special knowledge that God has. But again, this is a false premise. They didn't need any knowledge because they already knew God as good as they're ever going to know him. They're literally walking and talking with him on a daily basis in the garden. How much more can you know someone? How much more can you know about someone? How much more knowledge is there to have? None. So here's the thing, and then we'll we'll flip it to the second half here. This is what I want us to understand about this idea of temptation, what, what causes this whole thing to get off the rails. Temptation is believing what's not true in an attempt to get something we don't need. If you want a definition of what temptation is, that's what it is. Temptation is believing what's not true in an attempt to get something we don't need. You think of any way someone can be tempted, that definition fits the description. No matter what it is or how they're tempted or what scenario, that fits it every time. You believe something that is not true in order to try to gain something you don't need. That's what happened in the garden. It still happens today. And we'll look at that here in just a minute. So let's go back to the top. We're going to look at these three things again for for a minute and see how Jesus is greater than Adam in all three of these ways. So we talked about Adam was made in God's image. True. But how does Jesus fit into this? Well, Jesus is greater because Jesus is God's image. There's a difference there. Colossians 1.15 says this. Christ, I love this, I love this scripture right here. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. If you want to nutshell what Jesus is, that's it. He is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. So again, there's a distinction here. Adam and, well, Adam was created in God's image and then Eve created from him. But Jesus is God's image. So when you look at the Ten Commandments, we'll talk about a couple of them. The first one is actually the second one we're going to talk about. The second commandment of the Ten Commandments is no idols, right? Thou shalt not make any graven image. So this is important here because God didn't want them to worship false gods, obviously. But also, he does not want them to make an image to represent him and worship that thing. Because what it does is it dilutes God's greatness, That one image cannot encapsulate, no matter how wonderful the image is, no matter how beautiful the image is, no matter how much we think it represents God, it cannot fully represent all that God is. So he says, don't dilute my greatness by trying to to whittle me down to an image made of stone or wood. You can't do it. It's not truly me that you're worshiping. Don't do it. It's going to lead to where you don't want to go. And that's, that's what happens. And so, but then we see that Jesus, we don't need an an image to represent God because Jesus came to do that. So the the thing is, what does God look like? He looks like Jesus. 
And I don't mean in the physical sense. I mean the full embodiment of who Jesus was and is still is the truest, fullest, most accurate representation of God that there is. His character, uh, who, again, who he is at the core, is, is God. And that's what, we're, that's what we're getting to. It's more about his character than his outer appearance. That's what God looks like. But just like in Genesis 3, Satan is still at work to keep us from acknowledging that fact. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, Paul writes, Satan, who is the God of this world. If you want to know why the world's so messed up, that's why. Satan is the God of this world. Little g, but still, God of this world has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness or image of God. So Satan is still at work doing the same thing he did in Genesis 3 with the same goal in mind, to distract us from who God is to keep us from knowing and understanding who God is, to keep us from relating in relationship with who God is. And he uses the same tactics, distraction, temptation, lies, deception, same old tricks, same old game by the same old devil. He's still at work today. But then one more set of scriptures, then we'll move on, is I want us to, and I feel like most of us probably know this and believe this, but it just, we just need to get through this. So Jesus is not just the, exact image of God. He's not ju- he not, it's not just that he is God's image, but that he is himself God. Okay? So, again, John 1, verse 1. In the beginning, just how Genesis 1 starts, that's how John 1 starts. It's not by accident. That's by design. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was, with, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Skip down to verse 14. So who's the word? What's the word? You're talking about in the beginning, was, what's that? It says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the exact image of God because Jesus is God. Just important for the purpose of explaining this idea that we make that statement very clear. It's not, again, that he's a better copy than Adam was. It's not that he's 99.9% of God's image. It's that he is fully God. And he chose to put on flesh to come and rescue us from what Adam did. And we'll talk about that in a minute. So let me quickly get to the second, repeat the second point. So the second thing was that Adam wasn't just created in God's image, but that he was the first of his kind. There was nobody like him before. But Jesus is greater than Adam because Jesus is one of a kind. It's not just that he was the first of his kind. He is one of a kind. It sort of, again, takes that first idea one step further. So the first, we talked about the second commandment, don't have any idols. Here's the first one, Exodus 20, verses 2 and 3. God says, I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. First commandment, you must not have any other God but me. There's sometimes this confusion about Jesus But if we've established the first point, Jesus is God, it kind of clears up this confusion. But still, I want to explain this very quickly. So worshiping Jesus is not breaking the first commandment. He says, no other God but me. So while I worship God, I worship Jesus, well, that's more than one. Well, no, 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 we've already established that they're one and the same. Okay, so it's not breaking the first commandment. It's also not worshiping multiple gods. So it's not, well, I, I don't worship him above God. Maybe he's second. Well, it doesn't matter. They're the same. 
They are, they are one. They are one spiritual being. So this, this fixes that problem. But the other way um, that we see this idea that Jesus is one of a kind is really the power of it is found in Acts chapter 4. In Acts 4 verse 12, uh, Peter is preaching here and he says this, There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. This is the power of Jesus being one of a kind. He is the only way to bridge this relationship that we, this divide in our relationship with God. He's the only bridge, the only way, the only name, the only method, the only mode. It is Jesus and only Jesus. He is truly one of a kind. But as we kind of start to wrap it up here, let's look at this one final thought. And that's, that's the biggie, okay? So Adam's disobedience brought death, absolutely. So Jesus is greater than because Jesus' obedience brought life. So you, get the op- you do the opposite thing, you get the opposite result. That's what we see here in Jesus. Let's, we read this earlier, but let's read it again. Romans 5, 12. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Let's skip down to Romans 5, skip down to verse 17. This kind of explains in a little bit more detail. It says, For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many, but even greater, see that what I did there, greater, even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness for all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners, but because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. So again, in a nutshell, one man ruined everything. That's power right there, right? Adam Adam had all the power right there, and he blew it. One man ruined everything. But then one greater man, who also happens to be God, restored everything, fixed everything that was broken. So let me go back. I made two points about, about this temptation in the garden in Genesis 3. And the reason I did that is because I want to see a parallel here between that temptation and the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. We see the same two tactics being used here that were used thousands of years before. But again, we see a different result. So we talked about with Adam, the tactic with Satan was, he said, did God really say? He caused some doubt there. The term he used was, did God really say, don't eat of this tree? So with Jesus, what he does, he does two similar things here. The first temptation Satan comes to Jesus and says, well, you say you are the son of God. So he's using his words against him. So he says, if you are what you say you are, then turn these stones to bread. Just show off your power a little bit. I don't really believe you. Okay. So he uses the words against him. And then the second temptation here, Satan then takes him up to a high place and says, hey, Jesus, I dare you, triple dog dare you, to jump off. Because God says in Psalm 91, he won't let an, he, he'll have the angels come and catch you, lest your foot dash against a stone. So he's saying first, you said this, then do this. And then he, similarly, like in the garden, God said he'll protect you if you do my dirty little dare. He's tempting him. He's testing him in this way. Same tactic he used before. He's trying to use it. It worked once. Might as well try to play the hits, right? Might as well try to do it again. 
But just like with Adam, he didn't need what Satan offered him, right? He didn't need that. In a similar way, Jesus doesn't need to prove anything to Satan, does he? He has enough. Satan's trying to bait him. Ah, if you think you're so big and bad and powerful, prove it to me. I don't believe. But Jesus knows that Satan knows, right? He's like, you know that I'm the son of God. You, you understand what's, you're, I'm not that stupid. And I know that you're not that stupid. So I'm not going to give in to your trap. He, he fought that temptation. This, again, the second one that Satan used with Adam in the garden was he, he made this offer that was too good to turn down, but that was really too good to be true. This special knowledge. God's really scared that if you eat of this tree, you'll know everything and be like him. And he doesn't want that. And so with Jesus, he makes him an offer that seems too good to turn down, but yet was too good to be true. Because it says the third temptation of Jesus, he takes him up to the top of the temple and shows him all the kingdoms of the world. And what does he say? Really the dumbest one he's safe for last. If you'll bow down and worship me, I'll give you all these kingdoms. Well, do kings of the universe bow to other people? No, they don't do that. So the premise of this whole temptation is really dumb, in my opinion. I mean, sorry, Satan, but you're really dumb. Uh, not, not sorry, not sorry, I guess is what I should say. So he, take, he says, if you bow to me, I'll give you all these kingdoms. So again, he's telling him something that is not true to offer him something he doesn't need. Well, why doesn't Jesus need these kingdoms? He's already the king of all the kingdoms, exactly. He doesn't, it's like, well, yeah, I'm already the king of that, and I'm already the king. I'm not going to bow down to you. Like, again, really dumb move. I think maybe Satan was tired. Maybe he's losing a step in his old age. I don't know, but it was just not a very good one. But the idea here, the important thing, is that a different uh, decision by Jesus from Adam led to a completely different result. And really, this last temptation maybe is not so stupid. The idea here with Satan is, hey, I'm going to give you an easy way out. I know what your plan is, Jesus. I know that you're going to try, you're going to give your life for these wretched humans. I understand what's about to happen, right? So I will give you, I'll let you be the king of kings without dying on the cross. He offers him the crown without the cross. That does not work. And Jesus knows that. He knows, no, there's only one way this is going to work, and it's not this way. So again, a different decision led to a different result. Jesus is a greater Adam because he resisted this temptation and all temptation and fulfilled God's plan, which brings us life. Adam's disobedience brought about death, but the obedience of Jesus brought life. One more scripture as we close. It brings this whole thing full circle. So you remember in, when God's cursing uh, the serpent, then curses Adam, then curses Eve? When he curses the serpent, he makes that statement. He says that uh, the man will, uh, you'll bruise the man's heel, but he will crush your head. Romans 16, verse 20, Paul finishes up his letter to the Roman church with this verse. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. May the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. We see this come full circle now. The promise in Genesis 3 itself. So Adam and his disobedience pointed to the future obedience of a greater Adam named Jesus. But also the curse of the serpent pointed to Jesus. It's not just saying that we're going to hate snakes as humans, right? We don't want to get bit by a viper. It's not all that God's saying there. I don't even know if that's what he's saying at all. He's making this prophetic declaration. The first prophet ever in the history of the world was God himself in Genesis 3, pointing to the rescue mission that his son would later come to on this earth. 
Satan will be crushed under his feet. What Adam failed to do, Jesus did. The curse that Adam brought, Jesus broke. Aren't you glad that Jesus is greater this morning? I am.